Recovery Elevator, episode 110. So I, I told my wife on the flight home, I said, I, I'm going to get help. I can't do this by myself. And that was the key, was just admitting that I needed to get help. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for two years, six months, and one week. On today's podcast, we've got Chris. He's been sober for 11 months, one week, three days. He's from Portland, Oregon, and he's 45 years old. Before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. And just to remind you guys that there are show notes for every single one of these episodes. Kathy does a great job with the show notes. So if there are ever episodes with lists, with other resources mentioned in the podcast and you're driving, you're running, doing some laundry, etc., you can go to recoveryelevator.com and find the show notes of the podcast episode there as well. Okay, does alcohol give us courage? Let's get started. I think the better question to ask instead of does alcohol give us courage is does alcohol relieve our fear? I think that's more of the question here. I've mentioned on this podcast that I used to own a bar in Spain. My first solo nights tending bar in Spain, being 23 years old, running a bar in a different country in a different language, they were terrifying. I definitely needed some liquid courage. Those guys are crazy out there. They party late at night. So we were empty till about midnight. I remember for the first couple hours, it was just me, the bar, the wall, and some crappy Beyonce music videos. I mean, I would just take a shot. I'd say, well, you know, we'll just, uh, we'll hang out here a little bit longer than, you know, I need to, I need a little more liquid courage than boom, take another shot, take another shot, take four or five shots by myself, a solo, thinking I'm needing the courage to face the evening alone so far away from friends and family. But all I was doing was I was trying to eliminate the fear the fear behind whatever I was going to face that evening. Now, I'd like to refer to an analogy in Mother Nature. An ostrich will put its head in the sand when it sees danger. It does so because it believes that if it cannot see the danger, it no longer exists. Now, an ostrich is a comparatively large animal equipped with two powerful legs, which are formidable weapons in their own might. Those legs are also capable of conveying their owner at speeds of which would outpace most predators besides probably a cheetah, I'm guessing. So besides adopting this posture that looks just absolutely ridiculous, imagine a giant frickin' bird with its head in the sand. The ostrich then removes itself the three essential attributes to survival. It's sight, there's no fight, and there's no flight. It renders itself basically legless and useless. Me drinking five to ten drinks before the first customer showing up to Dolce Vita in Spain. Basically me doing the same thing, rendering me a total sack of shit bartender. 
I thought I was giving good service at my bar in Spain, but it was confirmed many times by friends, Spaniards, and other colleagues that my service was pretty subpar. Shitty service, shitty music videos, thank you Beyonce, how we even survived for three years, that's a great question. Wow, I wish we had security footage to go back and review. Now, birds are known to have extremely small brains, and this podcaster right now has a brain probably 1.1 times bigger than a bird, maybe 1.2 times bigger than a bird, but that's basically what I was doing in Spain when I was drinking alcohol. I was removing my abilities to face the evening, face my fears, face what was going to come inside the bar. Another analogy in Mother Nature where we can see this on a daily basis is a turtle. Yeah. Every time a turtle pulls its head in its shell, that's basically a human being taking a shot of Jim Bean. Turtle's like, nope, no way. I'm out of here. I'm done. Pulling the head inside of its shell. Human beings, same thing. Nope, no way. I'm out of here. I'm chugging some tequila. That is how I'm going to leave myself of this situation. In short, alcohol does not give us courage. It actually just destroys and inhibits our inhibitions. I used alcohol for over a decade to conquer my fear. Fear of what, you might say? Well, fear of what life can just present on its own. I was fearful and afraid of if the bar was going to succeed. I was afraid of if I was going to be a failure in life. I've been afraid of if this podcast was going to be successful or not. I've been afraid if I'm going to drink again. But I do know that drinking does not give me courage. It only alleviates temporarily the moments of fear that I'm feeling. Now, fear is a good thing at times. We are instinctively given fear to run away from danger. It is not at all unusual for a person to take a drink before a stressful moment in their life. I gave my brother's best man speech and I reached for a ginger ale and for a moment I was like, man, I wish this was something a little stronger. Whether we're talking about a guy asking a woman out on a date or a businessman preparing for a big presentation, a shot of liquid courage is often part of the pre-game ritual, shall we say. We all believe that alcohol makes us braver, but this is a huge myth. Is it just a psychological crush or does alcohol really provide courage to us in time of need? If alcohol really does have this power, is one drink enough to deliver it? Again, I've already debunked this myth in 33 podcasts total. The answer is no. But what are the chemical effects of alcohol on the brain leading us to indicate that we feel like we are getting liquid courage? Alcohol has a number of neurological effects, including memory loss, drowsiness, slowed reflexes, and other things that aren't quite as sexy as a confidence boost or lowered inhibitions. The lowered inhibitions are part of the effect, though as impaired judgment. The combined result is that people do things while drinking that they might not ordinarily do, including acts of bravery, or you could say acts of foolishery. Just made that word up. So what are the dangers of this liquid courage? If a few drinks makes you ask out the supermodel at the bar, all you're risking is a little public humiliation. If, however, you've had a few drinks at a biker bar and your newfound lack of inhibitions causes you to launch into your speech equating Harley ownership with lack of where you don't own a Harley, you may have just crossed into the danger zone. And once again, not the danger zone on the Top Gun soundtrack, my friend. One type of verbal courage people encounter through alcohol is when people lose their filter when drinking and just say whatever's on their mind. We've all been around those people and we've all been those people many times when we say things and the next day we get that text message and we're like, damn it, I shouldn't have said that. 
the lack of good judgment that people interpret as courage when drinking can cause people to do all crazy manner type of self-destructive things. If you have any doubts about this, watch any of the jackass movies. I've heard that alcohol was just rampant on those sets. TV shows such as America's Funniest Home Videos probably wouldn't even have existed had alcohol not have been invented. Drunken people tend to look at potentially dangerous situations and say, ah, heck, I can do that. Yeah, I can jump off the second story balcony and do a backflip on a trampoline and the land in a swimming pool successfully with a bike. No, that's not even possible. That's not bravery. That's foolishery. Again, that word I just made up. Hell, I think it would be safe to say that YouTube wouldn't quite be the sensation it is without alcohol. So don't be the ostrich that puts your head in the sand when danger arrives. Don't be the turtle. Don't pull your head inside of the shell. Don't start chugging Coors Light when life starts getting tough. Alcohol does not give us courage. It just eliminates our fear and inhibitions and will oftentimes make us do things that we will regret later. And now let's hear from Chris. Chris, how are you? I am great, Paul. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Chris, let's get right into it. How long have you been sober? Well, I've got 347 days as of today, and that's 11 months, one week, and three days. Boom. Nice job, Chris. How's that feel? Feels great. Yeah, good job. Never stops. Never, never gets old. <laughs> there you go. And before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family, and, and give us some hobbies. What do you like to do for fun? Sure. Well, I'm 45. I can't believe I'm 45, but I am. I live in Portland, Oregon, but I grew up in Colorado. But I lived here for about 18 years, and I'm a webmaster for a local theater company. I'm married. I have a daughter who's 12. And for fun, I like to listen to podcasts. Actually, I spend a huge amount of time, anyone will tell you. I like to see stand-up comedy. Uh, I like to hang out with my, my family, my kid, especially seeing movies, video games. And I like to travel. Did you say you like to do stand-up comedy? Is that what you said? No, I like to see stand-up comedy. I have not done it. Oh. I'm not brave enough. <laughs> My my friend signed me up one time for a for a stand up comedy night and it did not go well. Let's just put it that way. They're just like now we like to call Paul to the stage. I, was, I, I started clapping and uh, they're like and then everyone looks at looks at me. I was like, oh, you guys, you guys are a bunch of dicks. Oh, right. it did not go well, but that's okay. That's not how you want to start. No, no, no. Pretty much, I was the joke the whole time, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> let's uh, let's get back on track here. When did you first realize that perhaps you had a problem with drinking? Well, you know, in hindsight, I feel like I've known probably since I was like my early 20s. But I would say within the past, like probably five years leading up to the date that I quit, I was starting to really feel like it was getting out of control. But in, in like the final two years, I would, I would try to quit. I'd get like a week or two, uh, try to do a month sober here and there and never made it. And then leading up to the, the very last day that I drank, which was actually Easter of 2016, March 27th, I'm not religious, but I'm interested in the, you know, the rebirth issue, like the uh, metaphor for Easter there. Sure. I just had a really bad start to 2016. Uh, my sister got married in January. I was, I was practically in a blackout for the entire week of her wedding, which I feel terrible about. I tried to quit a few times after that. I, uh, it never lasted. I, try, I even promised my daughter I was going to quit. And then I, in February, I had a really big binge moment where I was caught drunk by my wife and I was just ashamed. I was like, that's it. I'm done. But then we had a trip to Hawaii planned for spring break. And so I mostly kept it together. I actually didn't drink uh, during the Super Bowl, which is kind of a big deal. Nice job. (laughs) Thanks. 
Uh, we even had friends over. We had a party, and we didn't drink. It was crazy. But then, so I like, I'm, I, I had those, you know, words in my head. I got this. And then we went to Hawaii. And after a couple of days, I said, well, I'm on vacation. I'm in paradise. I'm not going to abuse alcohol in paradise. I got the most beautiful place in the world around me. What do I need to get drunk for? But a Mai Tai sure would be nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, so, I'm on vacation. Your addiction you know, is telling you in, in your own voice that, yeah, Mai Tai would be a pretty good idea in Hawaii. And, and what happened? You can have one or two. Yeah, sure. Yeah. No, well, cut to, cut to three days later and I'm in a full-on binge going to the hotel, you know, shop every morning and buying pints of vodka and, and adding that to, you know, secretly drinking that while also drinking tropical drinks in front of my family. And it's a pretty shameful time for me, but that led to basically the last day of that trip was like we had a big, you know, dinner the last night, going to watch the sunset, live music, the whole bit, and laying by the pool and flipping back to the room and having nips of vodka, I basically, I got so wasted that I was like incapable of being in public. So I just had to go sleep it off. And I missed out on the last day of our trip. I kind of ruined dinner for my, my wife and daughter. I mean, they still went out and had a nice time, but they were, my wife was certainly aware you know, that I had bailed on that. So that was the day that the next morning I, I woke up, that was Easter morning and we had the flight home. I had to have my wife drive us to the airport in the rental car, which usually I try to do that. Just a pretty horrible day. My daughter thought that I was actually sick because that's what we told her. So she was saying to me, daddy, I'm sorry, you're not feeling good. And I just wanted to go, you don't have to be sorry. I have everything to be sorry for. Mm. Uh, so just a, just a horrible, horrible day. And that was my, I guess that's a high bottom, but that was my version of a rock bottom after so many previous attempts that was just that was me going I can't I can't do this alone I tried I mean if I can't if I can't quit on my own in paradise on a vacation like when am I going to be able to do this so I, I told my wife on the flight home I said I, I'm going to get help I can't do this by myself and that was the key was just admitting that I needed to get help I mean there were so many value bombs that I that I heard in, in in your in the bottom moment right there but let's just focus on the last one right there you said I'm I need to get help and and what did that look like but first, I mean, you're, you're telling me you created instant accountability with your wife, you, you know, someone who's closest to you. And so often we keep their, this secret to ourselves. We're so ashamed for some reason we shouldn't be that we withhold the secret. But you reached out to your wife and how, how, did, how did she react when you said that you needed help? Well, I think she was relieved because we had talked about it a couple of times before. I mean, she and I had both actually tried to cut back. We tried to moderate mainly for her, it was more about kind of, you know, keeping a healthy diet and trying to stay in shape because booze tends to lead to more, more snacking and all that stuff. So she was kind of like, Hey, we need to cut back on the drinking. And I think there was somewhere in the back of her mind thinking it wouldn't be so bad if Chris didn't drink so much, you know, in, in general. So that was kind of a, a thing that we did together, supporting each other. But again, I would be the first one off, you know, and, and if she had a bad day at work, then we'd both just go, okay, you know, today we'll, We'll, uh, we'll make an exception. So there's a lot of those exceptions made. But when I finally said, I need, to, I need to do this with help, she said, you know, she actually works in healthcare. She's like, I will get you a phone number. We'll get, we'll get you on the phone with a counselor. We'll get you started on some kind of program. She didn't really know much about it, despite her job. There's, you know, she doesn't know that much about addiction specifically, but she was like, I know how to get, get you in touch with the right people. So I knew that I had that support. And that's, that's huge. I mean, we still have things in our relationship that we have to mend, but she was there with me on day one with that support, just going, yeah, I'll, I'll help. I'll get you the help you need. I mean, I ultimately found the help pretty much on my own, but she got me that phone number that got me started and just knowing that she was behind me, you know? And, and, and what, what did that phone number lead you to, Chris? Well, I called our insurance company's main phone number for various types of mental health issues. 
and I told them what I was calling about and they got me to the right person. And, and she started asking me about my drinking habits, which again, this had been completely in, in, in secret for years and years. Right. And so suddenly I'm talking to a complete stranger. I've barely admitted this to my wife and now I'm telling a complete stranger exactly how much I drink. Were you a hundred percent honest? Cause I, I bet you they have a formula I, I like whatever they say, add three to it. That may be, and that may be why she freaked out so much because she might've been multiplying what I was telling her. Cause <laughs> I was honest. I was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I know that I'm sure people lie about this, but I was like, I was going to tell her the truth. So I said, yeah, you know, um, probably the equivalent of a fifth of vodka every couple of days, like every two days, whether it's and that could be combined as, you know, multiple beers, maybe bottles of wine, but it adds up to about, you know, a fifth of, of liquor. Uh, about approximately every two days. And she was like, well, that's enough to destroy your liver. So she was kind of nervous, was like, I think I, I need to know if you need, you need to tell me right now if you think you're having severe, severe enough withdrawal that we need to get you into a hospital. And I, I said no, because I hadn't had a drink in a, two days when I talked to her and I was feeling, you know, crappy, but not like hospital crappy. So talk me down from that. But yeah, for a minute there, it was like telling the truth was pretty intense. <laughs> Wow, what was that? What was that like when 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 she said, "Yeah, drinking that much can destroy your liver." How'd you feel at that moment? I think that was probably my greatest fear was that for years I'd been damaging myself. You know that I had unseen organ damage that I didn't know about. I, I you know, I'm afraid of a lot a lot of things that alcohol causes: liver damage, heart problems, cancer. And you know, for years I just kind of pushed that back. But those those thoughts had been rising in the back of my head for a long time. So I think. Hearing somebody actually say that, it was actually, it was a good thing to hear uh, also because it made me realize, God, I'm so glad I'm doing something about this. Even at, even as I was terrified talking to her and my voice was shaking, I was also like, yes, that's right. It's bad. It's what I'm doing is bad and has to stop. So, you know, that was helpful information. And so you guys are both on the phone talking about, uh, you know, what damage could be done. And she's thinking, okay, you definitely are drinking, you know, intoxicant levels here. And we both know that fear can get people sober, but usually for only a short period of time. What happened after that, after the conversation? Did you get inpatient treatment, outpatient treatment? What happened then? Well, she, she gave me the phone number of a counselor, basically a social worker level um, type of uh, psychologist who specialized in addiction recovery or addiction um, um, counseling. And so I, I called him immediately and I got an appointment for the next day. So everything started happening really quickly, which is good because if I had stopped and thought about it any longer, I think, you know, that's why I hadn't gotten help in the past because I hadn't taken action. So it was good. I was taking action fast. So I got in, I got, I saw him the next day. I told him the whole story. I, I told him about my history with drinking. I cried. I was very emotional. Sure. Um, and then I came home from that counseling session and my wife happened to be home uh, for the afternoon from work, which is very rare. So we had a little while to talk and I told her about the, I told her about it and I told her a little bit more of the truth about my drinking over the years because it had really been something I had done in secret a lot. I mean, she was aware, but not totally aware. And, and I ended up showing her the places in the house where I was hiding the extra booze, which was a real emotional thing to do. Yeah. Did, were, were any of those hiding spots where she's like, wow, that's a good one, Chris? <laughs> I think she was surprised. I, I thought, you know, all, all those years I thought maybe she knows and she's not saying anything. But actually when I showed her the spot that I was like keeping extra bottles of vodka that I would slip away and have a drink of, you know, that she didn't know about, she, she was like, wow, I had no idea this was here. And that just made it feel even worse. Like, oh, I've just been lying to the person I love the most, you know. Wow. And so what was that like the first week, the first month of sobriety? Well, those first, as you know, those first few days are pretty rough physically, just kind of having the physical withdrawal. 
even though it wasn't, you know, super severe for me, it was, it was bad enough that I had, you know, I didn't sleep. I was just night sweats, terrible, bad dreams, just, just nasty for a few days. And I was just exhausted by the end of that. By the end of the first week, I started to feel a little bit better. And then by the end of the first month, physically, I felt, I felt pretty great. Mentally, I think I was still trying to find distractions, but I, I felt, you know, 30 days was a pretty huge milestone. I don't think I had had a solid 30 days in probably at least 10 years. So before that, so, you know, that, that felt like, wow, maybe I'm, maybe I can really do this. Now you've, you've probably heard me say on this podcast that alcohol kills in this order. It goes spiritually, mentally, and physically, and then it's going to heal in the reverse order in physical, mental, and spiritually as well. So it probably mentally, how long did it take for, for things to start to come around that way? You know, I, I got to say, I think that today I'm still feeling my brain come come back online you know if that makes any sense I, I, it's it's been over 11 months and i still feel like some days are a little fuzzy but then i'll have a day and i go man i feel like i can really put thoughts together today in a way that i haven't for years sure so i mean the the mental part and i think the chemical effect and the way it rewires your brain i mean it it can't be uh, underestimated just how how great it is to reverse that and you know spiritually i'm not a religious person but i do have you know i do have a spiritual side i have a i have I have a belief in my, my daughter and my family and the love of the people in my life. That's, that's kind of my spirituality. And that goes away. I mean, like you said, that's one of the things you lose. And, and to me, that was just like losing the light in my life, you know, just kind of, just kind of going through the motions and nothing was fun anymore, including drinking. So to have that, that feeling of, of love and joy back is, is to me, the spiritual part sort of coming back. And that, that was the last part to come around, but it's definitely, it's definitely full, fully back. It's great. Yeah, and so how are your relationships with your wife and daughter at this moment? Uh, my relationship with my daughter is like better than ever. She's twelve. She's a really fun age. She can kick my ass in video games now, which is super fun. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> and she and she is ruthless. But uh, yeah, we, we we like the same kind of humor. We like the same movies. So you know, we quote Ghostbusters back and forth all the time. Um, we have a great time. And my wife and I are working on it. You know, um, we've been together for eighteen years and married for seventeen and. It's tough. We know each other really well, but also there's this whole kind of new layer to the onion that, about me that she didn't really know. And, you know, I'm working on myself in a way I never have before. I've never, I was never really open to counseling or kind of psychotherapy kind of level stuff. And now I'm reading self-help books and I'm learning a lot about how, how my brain works. And it's, you know, it's, it's a challenge. And, um, but she's, you know, she's trying to be there with, with it. And I think we're, we're trying to, um, Go through the go down the path together as much as we can. And and in this question, next question here is: What have you learned about yourself in sobriety? And what what I learned is that I need to let things go. Um, I, there's like this new Bible for me. It was uh, the Untethered Soul by Mike Michael Singer. I took my sweet sweet time reading it. In fact, I read half of it, left it on United Airlines flight, called him back. <laughs> you know, didn't show up and lost and found. I re I reordered it, bought it again, started from page one. And what I learned most about myself in sobriety is that I need to lower the bar and just let things go. And these expectations of people and myself especially were just so unrealistic. What could you say that you learned about yourself in sobriety? Well, I think the biggest thing I've learned is, and part, partly this is a tool that I've picked up from some of the um, things that I've been you know, teaching myself about um, recovery. But I, I definitely am surprised to learn that I can survive unhappy feelings and, un and discomfort. Um, <laughs> okay. You know, I think that the, the having booze as a go-to to, to uh, 
to kind of numb your feelings all the time is it, it's so quick to go to that that it's almost like I'm not feeling anything. So I'm not ever feeling anything bad either. Right. And I'm also not feeling anything good. But now that I'm having all of my feelings kind of coming at me at all times, I realize that, you know, if, if some things are not going to make me feel good and that's okay, I, it's not going to last forever. Most feelings go, you know, they pass by. So um, it's definitely something that you hear from a lot of people in recovery, but it's very true for me that uh, just realizing that I can let things, I can let things sort of ride the wave of a feeling and, and, you know, that I'm okay. I survive it. Okay. It's not, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, in the rooms, I think they would say life on life's terms. And uh, one of my favorite movies is Vanilla Sky with Tom Cruise. And there's a quote in there is, you got to know the sour to know the sweet. And kind of what I mentioned is what I've learned so much about myself is I just got to let it go. These feelings, when they come, um, I just got to ride with them and, and, and just let them go. I, I don't need to sit with them. I don't need to suppress them with alcohol or a drug or anything like that. Um, it's, it's really been remarkable. And then I plan on reading the, that book that I mentioned, uh, the untethered soul once, once a year, at least that thing was awesome. And so walk me through a day in the life of Chris, of how you're staying sober right now. Yeah. Well, first thing is, uh, I, and I swear, uh, you have not paid me to say this. I do go to cafe RE first thing every day. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. That is yeah. definitely, yeah, that is absolutely a huge, uh, a huge deal for me. I don't always post every single day, but I, I always read what people are up to. Um, that's a, a way of engaging for me and just, um, kind of staying mindful about it. I've been trying to get into meditation. I have not really done much of that, but I do try to take a little bit of time for myself when I wake up in the morning. I don't just jump out of bed and start, you know, getting on with my day. I have to get my daughter ready for school, all that stuff. I do have an alarm that goes off, and then I, I wake up and I spend a little bit of time in bed just kind of being. That hasn't turned into full meditation yet, but at this point, at least it's a little bit of a, a buffer between waking up and getting moving. And then about once a week, I try to go to a smart recovery meeting. I did, I did go to some AA meetings in the, in the beginning at the urging of my counselor, and those were great, but I felt that I found that smart when I finally t- tried a smart meeting that that was a better fit for me, and I really... At this point, I don't need to really learn. I think, I, I think I've learned most of the smart tools, most of the cognitive behavioral, behavioral therapy tools, but I think it's still good to just go see people face-to-face, and there's always new people that I can hopefully you know, maybe have some advice for. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the the cafe RE thing. You know, I don't post every day either, but I myself am a lurker. That's one of the first things I do in the morning is just scroll down and down and down and down and like and like and you know keep yeah. scrolling. Yeah, it's good. It's just it's just the affirmations because some some days I wake up on the wrong side of the bed. I'm a normal human being just in that regard, and it's sure. it's nice to have that affirmation that you know what I'm not alone and there's other people feeling these things and. And, um, you know, if I do have a question that pops up, Hey, has anybody, you know, experienced this and this or that? And, and within, and within minutes you get, you know, tons of comments. It's really nice. There are some people on cafe, RE, Brandy, Allison, there are some people on there that are like really, really on top of it and just post constantly. And I, I just bow down to them. I cannot personally, man, I can't do that. Um, it's, I just don't have the, the mental bandwidth. So if I'm just clicking like on everything, I hope people know that that means I read it, I took it in, it was important to me. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I, absolutely. No, I know what you mean. There are some rock stars in that group that seem sure. to have everybody's sobriety dates memorized and make graphics for them. It's really <laughs> cool to see people take ownership of the community. And what does the smart recovery meetings encapsulate? If you could just give give us a synopsis. I've been to a couple of those meetings and I think they're really neat. But what uh, what are they like for you? Well, it's interesting because they do vary, you know, kind of like AA, there can be uh, different flavors of smart meetings. Um, I go to 
two that I sort of alternate week by week. One of them is uh, pretty focused on the smart handbook and the tools that are in there, which are science-based, you know, methods that are, they are based on cognitive behavioral therapy. Actually, I think it's rational emotive behavioral therapy. And it's, it's just a, there's a series of different tools in there that kind of help you look at your priorities in life, look at your, um, maybe some beliefs you might have that might be a little bit flawed in how you react to things because you can't control everything that's going to happen to you. But the idea is you can control your you can control your reaction and you can control your actions and your choices that you choose to take in response to the things that happen around you in the world. So that that idea of, of having some power and some control um, while recognizing the things you can't control. I mean, that definitely sounds like a lot of things you might hear in recovery, but it's, it's that's the most powerful part of it for me. So there's one meeting where we really focus on those tools and we, you know, everyone introduces themselves and talks about an issue and then we might go through something in the handbook that will, you know, um, maybe shed some light on how to deal with some of those issues. And then the other meeting that I go to is a discussion meeting, which I consider to be kind of a bitch session. Um, people come in there and they, they, it's very loose and there's just kind of, we, sometimes we just talk about it almost anything. Sometimes it's not even recovery related, but it's kind of a nice, almost a social gathering. I, I take it that's not a typical sort of smart meeting, but um, that's my that's a fun one for me. That's my Tuesday meeting, and and I always it, I always tell my wife that meeting never disappoints. There's always characters. There's always drama. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. And and listeners, there was a huge value bomb in there with uh, not not so much in the Tuesday night meeting one, but the other meeting you go to with. There's so much in life that can't control that you cannot control. Life just happens. Things you know, car wrecks, accidents, speeding tickets, and, and you know, there's so much stuff that just gets thrown at you. But what you can control is your reaction, and that is a huge one. And you know, my coping skills and strategies were piss poor to you know at best for about a decade there because I pretty much just drank. Everything bad happened, just drank. Hey, I didn't sure. even when something good happened, I just decided to drink. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's a day that ends in Y. Hey, I get to drink. It's a day. It's a day that ends in Y. Let me just think about that one day. That's that's every single day, Chris. You're good. Oh damn, you got me. Yeah, that is every single day. And and Chris, with with eleven months, one week, and three days, have you had cravings still? Do you still get cravings? You know, they're a lot weaker and they're a lot fewer and farther between. But I I would say that uh, once in a while. I try to plan ahead. I don't, also, I don't spend a lot of time around drinkers. I don't spend a lot of time in bars like I used to. That's a change that I chose to make in my life that helps. But, you know, is, not wait, long is, ago. Is I that a recent to... change? Is that something that you, you did 11 months ago or just, you, you know, like a couple of years ago, you kind of phased out of the bar scene with your friends? Or did you have to kind of find like a whole new play set of friends when you got sober? You know, since I, since my daughter was born, I, I, I have spent a lot less time kind of, you know, going out. But when my wife and I would go out, we'd oftentimes, you know, whatever we'd go out and do, whether it was see a play or a movie or see comedy, and then afterwards we'd usually go to a bar to extend the evening, and sometimes with friends. And, and you know, and I, I work with a lot of people who drink, so a lot of times happy hours and things like that around my coworkers. I've just chosen to, um, I, you know, in the beginning, I, I definitely avoided those things right, right off the bat in the beginning of recovery. But I've, I've allowed a little bit of that back into my life now, but I always have a plan that I can leave. I don't want to be stuck uh, in a situation surrounded by a lot of drinking. And then, you know, there are times when, I, when there, there's moments that you don't expect. You know, sometimes you're, you're just at somebody's house for an afternoon and all of a sudden they're handing you a beer and you're like, oh, nope, can't, got to say no to that. They don't know that I don't drink. So, you know, there's just those moments you got to be prepared for. But I also plan ahead a little by just not putting myself in every drinking situation. And what's your response when people extend a beverage containing alcohol to you? 
I said from the beginning that I once I told people in my life, I told a couple of friends, I told my family that I was quitting. I, I said, it's not going to be a secret, but I'm also not advertising it. So if somebody offers me a drink and I, I just say, no, thanks. If they want more information than that, I'm happy to tell them, but I just say no thanks. And then if they say, oh, really? Oh, because people might know me as the guy that used to drink everything all the time. Like, <laughs> really? You're saying no? You never say no. I say, I'd say, well, you know what? I decided that it's uh, not working for me anymore and I don't drink anymore. So, you know, if they really want more information, then I'm a big oversharer and I will tell them everything. But usually that's enough. <laughs> sure. And I just want to share this experience is with you as well. I was in Colombia recently, the country for a wedding and I was drinking, um, you know, my soda water with a lime and this girl, she kept extending me her drink and just kept extending me a drink and just, I mean, she, it wasn't out of a malicious act of like trying to get me drunk, but you know, bless her heart. She just didn't understand. But finally I had to like put my foot down and was like, listen, sweetheart, this conversation is over. We we are not drinking. And I found that, you know, my, my heart pace was, was, was going fast. I'm, I'm kind of breathing heavily. I got really mad, but they don't understand what's at stake. And I just wondered, have you been yeah. in a situation where somebody's been almost like too forceful with the drink? Um, a little bit, you know, and that actually was really early on. I would say probably in the first month that I was not drinking, I, the other parents of uh, my daughter's soccer team, while they were having soccer practice, they, the other parents like to get together at a restaurant nearby. And they got, this is Portland, so we've got microbrews everywhere. And so that, of course, this was not just a restaurant, but a pub. Sure. And um, there was pitchers of beer and people would just kept pouring me a pint of beer and I was like no thanks and I handed it to somebody else and then they poured me another one and I handed that to somebody else and I, this was like like my second week of sobriety so it was pretty tough and I, I finally it was like I'm, I'm not having any beer tonight that was my answer at the time and um, the woman who was pouring all the beers knows me and also she's a pretty heavy drinker and she was like really you're gonna make us feel bad and I was like you know I'm sorry if it makes you feel bad, but I'm just not having it. She's like, well, do you just not drink beer anymore at all? Like, what's wrong with you? So it was a little <laughs> forceful. <laughs> and I, I kind of wasn't ready. I, that was too early for me, and I, I, did, I wasn't ready with an answer. So I, I just kind of like, yeah, I, not tonight. But it was uncomfortable, you know. And that's not, that doesn't really answer your question about cravings. I and mean, cravings can happen whether or not somebody's pushing stuff at you or not. But, you know, when, it, when, it, when the cravings come, I recognize that they don't last that long, and I just, I just kind of wait them out. But if there's somebody that's shoving something in your face, I guess you got to have an answer ready. <laughs> no, but that that's a huge value bomb what you said right there. When you do have cravings, it's important to recognize, like we said, you can't control. I, I still have cravings. I've been sober for over two and a half years. I can't control when they show up or not, but what I can control is my reaction. And what I do now is I just wait because all cravings have a lifespan, and actually scientifically they're they're shown to not last longer than 20 minutes. Most of them don't even last more than a couple minutes, or some of them are only just a couple seconds. But like you said, just wait Yeah, you learned out. that from your podcast. <laughs> oh, well, hey, there you go. So <laughs> People listen. I hear your voice in my head saying 20 minutes every time I have a craving. I hear, I hear Paul saying, these last 20 minutes, scientifically proven. And then I go, hey, look at that. It's only five. He's wrong. <laughs> yeah, I've been wrong a couple. That's, that is how I know that sometimes people listen to this podcast. Is like I get a stat wrong. I just get like a bunch of emails. They're like, oh, my bad. Sorry, guys. Yeah, I thought <laughs> yeah, everything the on the internet was true. Yeah. <laughs> and so what are your thoughts on relapse? Well, that's tough because since I started what I call my recovery is I consider that to be since I decided to get help. Um, the other times that I quit, I wouldn't call recovery because I wasn't committed to recovery. I was, um, I was white knuckling it, you know, even if it was only for a week, it was still a white knuckle week. So I, I guess 
if a relapse is, you know, those times that I couldn't make it on my own, that seems now like something that's very, very common, very obvious that it would have happened to me because I wasn't, I wasn't quite ready, you know, until I was ready to really put it all out there and try everything, kind of like throw everything at this, that I think those relapses were inevitable for me. But I know that there's a lot of people who are really working hard on their recovery. They're going to meetings, they're doing, they're doing everything that they think they should be doing and they still have relapses. And I think that's because this addiction is tough, man. Like you just have to, you have to go easy on yourself because I see that it's harder for some people to quit than others. Everybody's different. This was hard for me. It was very difficult. And it was the hardest thing I've ever, I've ever done. It was, I, that's why I was afraid to do it in the first place. I thought it would be too hard. I, I thought I was just going to drink myself to death eventually. Um, oh, but the, the fact that the I did fear. it, yeah. You know, yeah. But I, but I, now I can look back and go, wow, that was really hard, but I did it. And when I see people that are, that are trying really hard and then they're relapsing, I just feel for them because I can't tell you why I haven't. I just haven't. It's, it's, I, I, I've continued to do the work. And I haven't, but I can't say that, you know, that I won't tomorrow or today even. I don't think I will, but it's always a possibility. Chris, that probably was one of the best answers I've ever heard to that question. And to summarize what you said is, you know, there are people out there working a very solid recovery portfolio plan program and they still relapse. And really what it boils down to is alcohol is one of the most addictive drugs in the world. And we are against a volatile, volatile beast that can rear its head at any moment. And wow, that was a great answer. And Chris, we have reached oh, the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Let's do it. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? Okay, I'll try to get this in under the 60 seconds. I was on a business trip to Florida, and we had an event at the Hard Rock Cafe at uh, Universal Orlando. And I was drunk already from pre-gaming. So I had to go to the restroom and actually use it as a restroom. I laid down on the floor and tried to take a nap uh, in a bathroom in a public place. That was pretty terrible. But at that point, I thought, you know, I'm trying to sleep on a bathroom floor. I better not be in public anymore. So I went and tried to find my way to where I could get a cab back to the hotel because I could not face the charter bus that we came on. And I got lost in a parking garage. Uh, the only person I knew in Florida at the time was the guy that had picked me up from the airport. He was a, a, a limo driver. So I texted him, help me, and he kind of talked me down. But I was literally in a parking garage and could not find the door. I, 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 I'm loving it. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I'm, I'm <laughs> trying to contain the laughter here. That's a great one. I love it. I mean, parking garages have pretty big openings, and I was only a person walking, and I could not find the way out. So yeah, that's no, it, what it, my it, mental state was. Yeah, that's like in the, their design is basically just like open air. Even birds, you know, aviary species, all of them can find their way out of parking garages because there's huge, massive gaps and windows. You just walk inside, look down. Yep. Oh, I love it. I love it. Next question, Chris. We've all heard of the aha moment. Did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating that you couldn't control your drinking? I think when when I realized I had promised my daughter that I was going to quit and then I relapsed or I started again then it just real I just realized that alcohol was obviously the most important priority in my life even over my own child and that's terrible and shameful and that's that's pretty much the worst and what's your plan in sobriety moving forward chris well i just want to stay engaged and with with other people that are in recovery and just kind of with reading listening to podcasts and try to be of service what are some of the other podcasts, you know, you, you've listened to the Recovery Elevator podcast, of course, that's how we've connected, but what are some of the other recovery podcasts that you that you enjoy? I'm going to blank on the names now. There's one that's um, hosted by women that's really good. That's probably the and Bubble Hour. 
The Bubble Hour, yeah, that one's great. And then the Sober Guy one. Yeah, Shane. Yeah, Shane. Is, Shane Reamer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are those are two that I've liked. And then I listened to one that's not specifically it's not specifically about addiction, but it's called the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, yeah, it's a really good one. And the guy who does that has got a couple of different addictions, and so sometimes he'll delve into drinking or um, or other addictions. Yeah, I've heard a couple of those episodes, and I want to listen to that podcast, The Mental Illness Happy Hour, more and more. And in regards to sobriety, Chris, what's the best advice you've ever received? All right, well, since I've been listening to your podcast, I've been looking forward to answering this question. I had a good friend who had been about a year ahead of me in recovery, and he was the first non-family member that I texted uh, when I started. So it was my first week in recovery. And he said, be kind to yourself and focus on the tactical. Don't drink today. And if you already drank today, don't drink tomorrow. Huh. I like and it. And that was the first time, that was the first spin on one day at a time I heard anyone say, and, and it's really stayed with me. Yeah, that's, that is a nice way to spin it. Be tactical and only focus on today. I love it. And then what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or are already sober? Well, from my experience, I think if you're worried that you have a problem, you probably do. And the idea of quitting is really scary. And I know for me, it felt like I was going to give up my identity. But I think you are giving, you are giving something up, but it's not your identity. You'll find that out, I think, if you quit, that your, your addiction was lying to you about that. And just don't wait. The rewards are so much better than I thought they would be. It's just awesome. I love it. And before we depart, Chris, give listeners your own customized. You might be an alcoholic if line. Okay, you might be an alcoholic if you can nurse a single beer all night so that your beer breath covers the fact that you're secretly polishing off like a fifth of vodka. Oh, I love it. I love it. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for helping me stay sober. Have a great afternoon. Thank you, Paul. appreciate it. Usually when there's a redaction to a podcast episode, it usually comes the week after, two weeks, three weeks after, after I get a flood of emails saying, Paul, get your facts straight. That was not right. But after recording the part about the ostrich putting its head in the sand when fear or danger arises, I was like, come on, no way. That can't be possible. There's no way such a large, ferocious, awesome beast could evolve into the 21st century by putting its head in the sand when fear comes. So I went to Google, and it turns out, yeah, ostriches don't do that. So I apologize. Ostriches, they don't put their head in sand when fear arises. I guess that's just an analogy that I've always heard. They don't do that. But I am pretty sure a turtle puts its head inside of a shell when the turtle feels fear. If you're out there or riddled with fear for no apparent reason, don't beat yourself up. You're not the only one. Fear guides many of us in life. Perhaps that might be why I was Michelangelo, a ninja turtle, for Halloween nine years in a row. I desperately wanted that shell in life. I still want that shell at times, which is normal. It is normal to feel that way and it is normal to feel fear. Keyword, feel the fear. I don't run away from it anymore with alcohol. I feel the fear and emotions as they come and I let them pass. Pour me, pour me, pour me a drink. Life is an opportunity. Life is not an obligation. And for about a decade there when I was drinking, I felt that life was an obligation. Pour me, pour me, I was a victim. But no, life is an opportunity. Life is an opportunity that we have every day to live a new life, to change the way we are living our life. Each breath we take is another opportunity to change things. I heard somebody say that at an AA meeting one time, and it really resonated with me. Pour me, pour me, 
pour me a drink. No, life is not an obligation. Life is an opportunity. Now, once again, don't forget about the Recovery Elevator Retreat, August 24th to August 27th. We're going to cap it at 30 members. There's already 22 people that have signed up. Space is limited. You can go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash retreats and find information there. We'd love to see you there. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. Thank you.